0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 135, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. This week, one of the country's largest school districts are going to give students a day off to protest. And another large school district is suing Juul Labs, you know, the e-cigarettes. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, if your students can't relate to the characters in the classroom novels, our guest says you might be doing it wrong. (music) Hello everybody, Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by the person who advised Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to jump ship, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing?
1: I'm great. Just back from London.
0: You do a good British accent. That's a little not, bit. That's not bad at all. I cannot do any accent. It's like a joke in my house whenever I try to do an accent. Like, they just, they're like, Dad, stop.
1: I can do a few. What else it you It has got? to be random. I can't
0: okay. prepare. Okay. So you're not like uh, some sort of SNL performer. No. No. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, how have things been going for you?
1: Oh, I thought we were going to talk about my sessions with, you know, yeah, yeah. Tell the me about Duke that. and Duchess of Sussex.
0: Yes, that's good. Yeah, tell me. I mean, is that crazy?
1: It's crazy, but it's real life. And you know what I told him when we met? I said, look, you know, family's family. You can love them from afar, you can love them up close. I say get up out of there.
0: I love that you're playing <laughs> along here, but that's what you would have said.
1: Um, I don't know if I'd have left the I mean, royal family.
0: In today's day and age, I, they're just going to set up a GoFundMe and we're all going to bindlessly fund I don't know. it. I find and... it
1: like completely insane. But I will tell you that I watched The Crown and to actually get a real glimpse of what the history yes. and, you know, just the, the entire fabric right. of what The Crown represents. It was very enlightening. And so to understand the amount of pressure and the lack of decision making for a young couple, I think I'd be ready to bust too.
0: So I was reluctant about watching The Crown, and I will now go on record saying it's probably one of the best made shows on TV right now. And if you haven't watched it, like you should I keep watch
1: checking it. to see if there's gonna be another season.
0: Oh yeah, there will be. They've I'm already waiting. got they've already got Princess Die. Um, oh, cast I'm so in. waiting. Yeah, and uh so that should be pretty good. But what what's interesting, here's my takeaway from the crown, and I may or may not blow your mind, but the crown, and hence the title of the show, is not a person. That's it the point. Is not. It is an institution. That's right. And there just happens to be some people who are the figureheads of those institutions. But it's really all these other tentacles that are basically calling the shots and running things. And the but
1: fact then, that the queen actually does not make and, you know, sets these decisions, she's um, guided.
0: Right. Exactly. By staff. And yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting. Like my brother, he won't watch it. He's like, I refuse to watch it. I think it's ridiculous. I can't believe taxpayers give them money. But like, it's the truth. That's kind of like it's history. Don't you want a different perspective? He's like, I don't even want to see it. And this is, but then again, you didn't want to watch uh, Game of Thrones, and then he watched it. And I, loved I've it, never
1: so. watched that. Oh, it's that's great. another show it's, for us.
0: It's good, good, good stuff. Um, so tell me uh, what's going on in the teachers' lounge today?
1: Well, you know, we're talking about the historical context of The Crown and what's going on with the monarchy. What about our students being exposed to doing research and being involved in politics and you know finding out the nitty gritty of what's going on? In our own country, we've got a school district in Virginia that says, give them a day to go and take part in their civic
0: engagement. And protest? Something.
1: um, Now, here's the thing. It doesn't necessarily say, hey, we're going to give you a day out of school so that you can go and protest. They specifically made sure not to define it because there's many other things to do. There's, you know, days at the Capitol where you go and you support something. Mm -hmm. You want to maybe go and and listen in on um, some major political issue that's going on that you can get access to. It doesn't necessarily mean be loud, destructive, and defiant in society and get credit for school that day.
0: So um, full disclosure, um, I think this is awesome, number one. But the full disclosure is that's the district that I went to school in. Wow. Fairfax County, Virginia. That's where I grew up. And um, I I saw that story over the holidays and thought, wow, I like that they're doing that. Let me tell you what it's like growing up in that area. I mean, you are basically... 20 to 40 minutes or an hour, depending on traffic, from Washington, D.C. Exactly. You know, like here you are in a spot where you have access to the power center of the United States and arguably the world. And so if you grow up where we are now, a field trip, you go to the local news station or the police station, like that's kind of your your civic engagement and learning. Well, when where I grew up, we would go, well, for one, remember Senator Daschle? Yes. His daughter went to school with me in a public school. So here I was with the majority or minority leading's daughter in my, in my school. And then when we go on a field trip, we go to the Supreme Court in a – Justice would come and talk to us. Like it is a different world wow. in terms of learning. What exposure. It is. And, you, and I didn't realize it at the time. Like, oh, you know, oh, we're going to go to the Holocaust Museum today. Like one of the, the See, greatest. See, and that's
1: still on my bucket list.
0: Yeah. And that was a field trip for us when we were in high school. And um, so I think it's great that this county, and if there's any county that's going to experiment with something like giving them a day off for civic engagement, they are perfectly positioned to do that.
1: Well, I think that it, it, it aligns with some things that we participate in, like our senior project, job shadowing, giving children an opportunity to learn about real life careers. This is learning about real life politics, because go back and think about history. Um, if young people had not been involved in vocal and had not become activists, where would we be right now despite the political climate that we're in where would our country be right now so why would we stifle our children and not allow them to be involved deeply in decisions that can greatly impact their future i will say that there's a few keys that i think is missing from here i would have loved to have seen a component where they said okay you can take a day to participate in civic engagement, but you must bring something back, bring a nugget back to our school yeah. and share it so that everyone can have a piece. Like
0: there could be like a list of projects that mm-hmm. you could choose from and complete one of those. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, that is missing if that's not, you know, already there, or maybe they're going to put that in, but you're right. If you're, And gonna- I bet it's
1: there if they, you know, thinking about this is a great school district, I'm sure that a lot of conversations were had to lead to this decision. And right. it, I bet it definitely included teachers who wanted to see something. Of that.
0: Right, because if you're going to give them a day, let's. There needs to be some sort of you know return on it. I think just to kind of learning opportunity and prove that one actually took place. Um, but I'm all for this, and in apathy is kind of what you were talking about is such a problem, and and it's so easy for us to get sucked into what's not important. It's like the other day I was having a conversation with my wife and. You know, there was a bunch of big news stories going on that day. And she says, oh, did you see Jillian Michaels commented on Lizzo? And I was just kind of like, you know, I did see that. The foolishness. (laughs) And it popped up in my news feed a lot. And it, it hurt me, not having anything to do with what was being said in that commentary, the fact that my wife and I, like this bubbled up to our conversation is what hurt me. And there were so many other important things that happened that day. But that
1: was important too, because right now Lizzo is a major self-esteem booster for a lot of young people and a lot of women and and anyone that is, you know, struggling with self-esteem issues related to being overweight. So, you know, it has its place, but I, I still think that, um, Just the fact that you grew up in this area and that you have these types of connections. Wow, our children. Just think if if your children and my children could just take a field trip across town.
0: Well, and what I never did was I never had the opportunity to protest. Like, I never actually... You know, while we took a field trip, that's one thing. Do you
1: think of? Can you think of something that you would have protested oh, for, or a protest 90s. that occurred back then that you could have participated in? Well,
0: I mean, I, I could say today if I were a student, absolutely, I would be quick to jump into anything dealing with gun violence and, you know, in schools. And I think, I think and that's where this,
1: how this even came about. That when would you make think sense. back to the tragic situation at Parkland in Florida, how vocal those young people were, I mean, wow, I was so impressed with them mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, moved they were about discussing gun laws that that helped lead to this school district. But I will tell you, there were a few other school districts who um, wanted to try the same thing, but it didn't work because they received so much negative feedback. So. So, and
0: what, what is the pushback, you think?
1: Uh, there, there, it's it's kind of hard to explain because I don't agree. But I think the problem is, first of all, you think about where they're located geographically, and they immediately turn this into a partisan issue. Oh, you're just trying to let your liberal students get out of class to do this, this and that and the other. But you also have a lot of conservative
0: um, young people who have also a have a voice right. and,
1: and are against or for something and want to be vocal I mean, take about abortion,
0: it. for example. There's two yeah. sides. I mean, you could protest for either side, right? That,
1: that is correct. And yeah. so I just think that if school leaders um, don't feel supported, if they feel that it's going to cause backlash um, and negative publicity, then they've pulled back. But it's good to see that uh, Fairfax didn't listen to the negativity and they right. put student needs... Or voice first.
0: I will again say, I mean, it was a great school district for me to grow up in. I was at a public school there um, in Fairfax County. And another really cool program that I had the opportunity to do my senior year um, in my um, political or my, I think it was a political science, like elective or whatever, um, the second half of the year, they allowed us to intern in buildings, federal jobs in Washington, D.C. And um, my dad had a a tie-in to um, a congressman, uh, Congressman Bob Livingston, who was the uh, chairman of appropriations at the time. And I actually had the opportunity to leave school around about noon every day as a senior. And I would catch the metro, and I would ride it into the city and go on the Capitol Hill and intern in an office. In hindsight, I was so green. I'm almost embarrassed to think about, like, you know. But at Man, the same time, I was were learning right a lot. There. I was there. I, you know, I had my my finger on the pulse of of the nation's capital. But uh, I
1: think with um, the addition of the internet and social mm-hmm. media, I think our young people. Are not as green i think they're they are much more involved they're exposed to so many more um news stories and ideas and opinions and i think that it, it has just driven them to want to be a part. Right. and why stifle that i mean these are our future leaders
0: uh i agree i hope to see other um districts school districts around the country doing it and I, again i think if you're near any big city this is an easy opportunity to pull this off um speaking of big cities san diego It is, I think, the second largest school district in the state of California.
1: You do realize? Oh, that's that's I'm a product of the San Diego. This was not intended
0: that where you know you've got my district and I've got yours. Ah, it's all right.
1: We're highlighting ourselves tonight.
0: (laughs) Yes, but so San Diego's public schools have filed suit against Juul Labs, as in Juul e-cigarettes. Their argument in the forty-page complaint, um, which is actually filed in the San Diego Superior Court, says that the the product disrupts the learning environment and causing increase in student absences and illnesses. And it's also diverting away from learning in just in school in general. So it's what say serious. you, does the school district have a right though to, fi- to sue them? There's, I don't see any monetary I mean, value attached to this. When
1: you ask me, do they have a right? I don't know the legalities of it, but as an educator, It is, it is, it's nearly an epidemic right now Mm -hmm. in many schools across the nation. And if you've seen any of the recent news reports, I mean, young people are dying. They're ruining their insides. Their, their body is a temple and they're ruining it with this. So if this is impacting, um, Important school improvement indicators, attendance, discipline, because if you are not feeling well, then you're irritable. You can't listen. You can't focus. You can't learn. Um, if It's impacting their um, their health status that is ultimately impacting the school environment and, and the school's ability to achieve. So I think they have every right to um, address it, but they also have to be absolutely sure that Jewel, who, who's, who they're going after, is the only factor. Right, that could, that's impacting them. This this
0: this great. And I think that's a good point. And and I guess if I was sitting on a jury that had to decide this, and that's really the only. Have way you we taken
1: like the it. steps to find out what else is impacting?
0: Have you taken the steps? But also, what has Jewel done that targeted schools? And that's the case. I would think that would need to be made for those. Suing is to well, say. Well, how easy
1: are the students getting the drugs? Right. Like, how, is it located across the street?
0: And what's the marketing practices like? Is it is it targeted? I mean, the camel with camel cigarettes. We all was, know right?
1: that with marketing, they always pick a particular gender, race, age, you know, whatever's like big right now. Right. Young people.
0: Right. And so I think if you could prove. You know, whether through targeted ad buys in Snapchat or Instagram, or through characters like a camel, I don't know. I they don't. They must have
1: clever lawyers,
0: right? They, they must. And so, um, I'm really curious to see how this plays out. You know, again, Mississippi was on the front end of the tobacco lawsuits years ago, and it is still part of the rainy day fund—the money that Mississippi received um, from the tobacco companies—and it is money that the state can tap into if they ever need, and that came from. Tobacco tobacco companies in a lawsuit filed against them.
1: But isn't that what lawyers do anyway when they're conducting their research is looking at the components of a former case, what was successful about it, what was not, and what was the whole game plan Right. Um, so I bet that they have a very good strategy. I bet they have some great evidence for them to represent a school district. I mean, it's unprecedented.
0: It is. Um, I, you've talked about this before on this show, that it's not as big a problem in your school. But I do know in the school that our, our kids go to. It's, it is a it, big problem. It's a big problem. Unfortunately, you know, my son talks to me about it. So I, I know. My son
1: has talked to me about yeah, it too.
0: And it's um it's unfortunate because I also know the the his friends who I've watched grow up and how many of them are now using jewels. But I
1: also get concerned about which parents are okay right. with their kids because there are some that we know their parents are aware right, um, that they're using it.
0: It's always tough for a parent and we could probably do a whole episode on yeah. this, but when you've heard, you know, child X or child Y is using this, do you have a responsibility as the other parent to tell that parent?
1: You have a responsibility to teach your child right right from wrong and what's safe and what's not safe and hope that they make the best decision. I don't know. I think it depends on your relationship with that family, how close you are, how much you discuss things of that nature. Right. Um, But I also think that just as citizens in the area that um, we have to make sure that everybody is aware of the effects. And I will give credit to our local media. I've seen several stories mm-hmm. um, recently over the last few months that have been sharing the negative impact that it's having um, on the human body. And so hopefully people are just, you know, getting informed.
0: Well, this will be interesting to see if other districts uh, jump on board with similar lawsuits. Are you ready for the Brad Inn?
1: Bring it on.
0: Our guest in today's bright idea segment is an associate professor of English education at St. Louis University. Jennifer Bueller is also the author of Teaching Reading with YA Literature: Complex Texts, Complex Lives. Jennifer, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I'm very excited to have you because I was recently reading an article published by the National School Boards Association, where you had a quote that really grabbed my attention. And what you said was, "Quote: What does it mean if you never see yourself in a story?" it's dehumanizing, and it invalidates your existence. How common of a problem do you think this is?
2: I think it's an incredibly common problem because uh, in our schools nationwide, uh, very few teachers uh, writ large have moved from the Western canon to um, a more diverse array of literature offerings. It's just a really hard shift to make in part because our curriculum remains pretty traditional nationwide. Uh, It requires teachers perhaps to be reading out of their comfort zones and exploring new authors and new texts. And it it involves getting parent and administrative support. You know, making that change is a Herculean effort for a lot of people. Uh, Money's a factor, too. To bring different kinds of books into the classroom, you have to be able to pay for those books. So I think a lot of teachers want to make this change, but they're maybe not sure how. But at the end of the day, uh, too many kids are still feeling like they're outside of the story of literature.
0: Yeah. And before we get into like how we could make the change, what, let's kind of draw the picture of the fact that it, that it is a problem. I, mean, I saw one um, stat, I guess it was a survey of librarians, and um, they said it's very difficult to find books that portray characters with disabilities, um, native uh, people, and uh, English language learners in books. So who else do you think is, is getting left out in literature?
2: Um, I think kids that live in poverty are often left out. It's becoming more common to find protagonists that are young people of color. But um, young people of color uh, aren't the only marginalized group in the country. Um, Kids who are poor, um, who don't experience sort of suburban privilege, um, middle class comfort, like those stories need to be told, too. And those those kids aren't only living in the inner city. So that's the first category that would come to mind. What did you say? You said students with disabilities, English language learners, Native American students. Definitely those are also um, much harder populations to find stories about. So I think we're hitting on a lot of the major ones.
0: Do, Do you think that the books don't exist or they just don't find their way into the classroom?
2: I think the problem is actually connected to both of those issues. There aren't enough books that depict the experience of, you know, diverse human beings. Um, but even as those books are becoming more common, it's not always easy for them to find their audience. That That is a, you know, that's connected to... The marketing departments of publishing houses, the amount of advertising budget that's devoted to those books, and um, the willingness of bookstores and librarians to stock them. So there are all kinds of connecting issues here that play a part in, you know, books becoming visible and stories of this kind becoming visible.
0: I didn't say this at the top of the show, but you've taught high school as well. Do you think teachers are cognizant that this is an issue? Are they aware that, you know, they have children in their class that really don't have books that reflect them.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of teachers want to be more responsive to their students, but they maybe just don't have the resources or don't know how to begin the process of turning the tide in their classroom, you know, turning the tide in terms of the curriculum that they're able to deliver. So um, anytime you're a teacher and you see kids in the back with their heads down or kids who are fake reading, which is a term that I learned from Penny Kittle, who's a national leader in English education. You know, it's pretty demoralizing and heartbreaking as a teacher because, you know, you're failing in those moments. But figuring out how to stop failing can still be hard.
0: What do you do with the kid that's fake reading in the back of the classroom?
2: I think you talk to them. I think you um, ask them what's getting in the way of them connecting with the story I think you then also do a lot of soul searching on your own part. Like, what am I offering? What am I not offering? Where, you know, who are the voices that aren't being represented here? Where are the silences in this curriculum or in this classroom? Um, And, you know, kids are smart. And if you ask kids what's not working or what would make a difference, they can tell you and they can give you a lot of insight. But those can be intimidating conversations because you're vulnerable in those moments when you're asking kids to talk with you about what's not working but I think you have to let yourself be vulnerable if you really want to become a more you know powerful and effective presence in the classroom and in their lives
0: and you you kind of answered this question I'm about to ask you but it's slightly different it should a teacher be overt with their class about the challenge that they're having to put these books? that are more diverse in their classroom? Should they, should they have an open discussion about that?
2: I think they absolutely should because I think um, most all of us human beings appreciate honesty. And if you're willing to be honest with the kids about your awareness of the problem and your desire to serve them better and affirm them more, and then if you follow up that confession with uh, asking them for advice, they may know books that you as the adult don't know uh, they may know other popular culture media forms that you don't know that could somehow, in a roundabout way, connect back to books. So, kids can be amazing resources if we allow them to be.
0: If you're a teacher, what are the obstacles in the way of of bringing a more diverse collection of books to the classroom?
2: So I touched on that a little bit earlier because I've I've lived these obstacles myself, and I, um, and I often when I'm able to talk to teachers, I'm often aware of um what I said before, their desire to make a change, but the sort of uncertainty about how to proceed. Um, So here's a list of the obstacles. One is inertia and tradition. If you work in a system where the same books have been taught for years, if not decades, it's really hard to make the case that there's a problem with that. Because it may not be that those books in themselves are bad, but it's just that they can't meet every reader's needs. They can't do all the work that literature should be able to do in the lives of kids.
0: And Can I I stop you right there for a second? Can you give me an example of a book that like everybody is reading in high school that meets that criteria of where it's just stale and no one's really relating to it, but you still just kind of have to
2: to push through it? Well, I'll name the book and this will you know, it'll elicit different reactions for different people. And it may not be that the book is stale, but I'm thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird. That is one of the most commonly taught books in the secondary curriculum. It's a book that a lot of America continues to be in love with. I mean, it's a beautiful story about some really um, affectionate, compelling characters you know a little girl scout and her dad and the the neighbor down the street boo radley um calpurnia the housekeeper tom robinson who who's a victim in the story you know and atticus is a hero atticus stands up against his town and he defends uh tom robinson and that's not a popular choice but at the end of the day that book represents white america's Vision of racial progress and injustice, and, and it's a really different thing to get a story that tells um, or asks questions about racial justice that are not that's not coming from the white perspective. Um, Atticus is a white savior figure, mm-hmm. and I think um, that that kind of story makes a lot of teachers feel really good um, because the majority of teachers are white. But um, it's an old story. I mean, that book was published in the 60s. There have been so many books published since then that are more contemporary, more relevant, um, more cutting edge. And so why not teach To Kill a Mockingbird alongside a lot of other more current books? It's a great idea, but teachers may then wonder, well, which books and how do I get the money to pay for those books And what if these books are controversial? Am I going to get blowback in the form of censorship or book challenges? So this is the kind of cascading set of doubts or worries that can get in the way of change.
0: Do you have any tips for teachers on navigating two things? One, uh, you kind of talked about like the trouble of introducing new books to the school, getting that past the administration and the parents. And then two, how do you just financially get new books?
2: Mm -hmm. So I think, Two things come to mind in terms of introducing the problem to administrators or the uh, the idea of changing up the curriculum. You know, you need to know the books really well that you're interested in championing. Um, you have to have your own argument that is appropriate to your own educational context for what change is needed and why. And this too can be a really heavy lift because it's a lot easier to um, read someone else who is in education who inspires you and try to use their vision or their argument to make the case for your own setting and it certainly helps to have those models Um, but at the end of the day as an individual teacher I need to know what's right for my kids in my school building in my community and I need to have done the homework to have gone out and explored newer literature and sort of had both an intellectual and a kind of gut check on whether these books seem like they would be a good fit for my students. So those are the kinds of things that I would suggest teachers think through or start working on um, as they imagine going to their administrator or their curriculum chair and, and talking about these things and making requests for change. Um, you know, just bringing to the attention of the administrator or the curriculum chair, like I have a lot of kids who are checked out in my class and I want to do something about it. Can we think together about what might be appropriate next steps? Like that might be another way forward. But you asked me the second part, which is about money. Um, you know, that's, that's always going to be a sticking point, but a couple things come to mind on a, the, the sort of lowest level. When I was a classroom teacher, we had vending machines in the school building and um, in the state of Michigan, every, um, aluminum can or plastic bottle had a 10 cent deposit attached to it. And mm. that's still true. So when kids threw their um, empties in the recycling box, you know, I made a point of saving those and taking them to the grocery store and getting the cash back and using that as a book fund. That's I mean, cool. that's that, that's so silly and it only comes up to 20 or $30 you know, every month or so, but that's still 20 or $30 um, on a much broader and sort of national, more visionary level. I mentioned the name Penny Kittle earlier. She is a former high school teacher in New Hampshire. She's now working with college students, but she's written a number of books that have been um, highly influential in, in the field of English education. One of them is titled Book Love, and Book Love was about the problem of kids' fake reading in high school, and it was an argument for offering choice and more contemporary literature in the high school. It's a wonderful book. And Penny Kittle established a foundation called the Book Love Foundation that awards, I think, about 10 grants per year to teachers around the country who apply for them. And those grants consist of several thousand dollars to assist teachers in building diverse contemporary classroom libraries. So that's kind of one extreme to the other. And there's a lot of um, other examples in the middle. But there are There are possibilities out there, but you have to kind of develop an entrepreneurial spirit. Of course, it doesn't hurt to get your administrator on your side who can sort of set aside actual budget funds to support you. But if you have to do it on your own, those are a couple of ways.
0: You said um, something contemporary literature. Um, You actually, I mentioned, wrote a a book called Teaching Reading with YA Literature, Young Adult Literature. Um, And can you tell me a little bit bit about your passion with Young Adult Literature? Is, Is it getting the respect that it deserves in the classroom?
2: Um, the, I mean, the answer is yes and no, and I always hesitate if I make a blanket statement like I made at the start of the show about nationwide what teachers are or aren't doing. There's all kinds of nuance in these in these sweeping statements that I'm making, but but with regard to young adult literature, I teach a college class now on young adult literature, which um, fills to the to the max every fall and uh, has a waiting list every fall. So that's just an incredible privilege that I get to do that. Right. But um, I taught young adult literature in high school as well. And I can tell you that I continue to say to my students here at St. Louis university every fall, you have to be ready to make the case for young adult literature, pretty much no matter what setting you're in, I have to make the case for these books at the university, Um, high school and middle school teachers have to make the case for these books in their settings. And it's, um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, let me tell you, for every critique of young adult literature, I can come back and give you an argument about the beauty of these books, the artistry, the sophistication and complexity of them, and their relevance in the world. But, you know, there's two things working against us, I guess, with young adult literature. Um, One is that people don't know what the books contain. They think of the books as um, all being kind of manifestations of sweet valley high, or The Babysitter's Club, which are 1980s series. Or they think that young adult literature is nothing more than like Twilight or Harry Potter, which, you know, all of these books have value to somebody. But there's a lot more to the field than those easy kind of identifiable titles. But the other part that I think makes young adult literature always have um, sort of a burden attached to it is books about teenagers, you know, speak to the experience of teenagers in the world, and teenagers are a population that struggle to earn respect from adults and the society at large. I think a lot of people have ambivalence about their own adolescence. You know, they remember the pain and the embarrassment of being a teenager, the the struggles that teenagers go through, um, and so going back to that can be really hard for people. And you know, it's just easy to say that teenagers are. Um, Hormonal, impulsive, not deep thinkers. Well, none of that stuff is actually true. Teenagers are as complex as are the books about them. But people sort of need to be pushed, I guess, to believe it. And if you don't have a teenager in your own life, it's easy to think poorly of teenagers. Mm -hmm. Teenagers can be scary. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes to be broken down here, both about the kids and about the books.
0: Let me, I'm curious, and I want, to, I want you to challenge um, myself and our listeners. It, you mentioned there's some YA books that are complex. Can you give me one title of a, of a YA book that's that meets all the criteria of complex literature and could compete with just about any other book you put in the classroom?
2: It's always hard. It's like choosing your favorite child. Right, but let, right. me tell, let me tell you about a book that I've taught 10, 10 times now at the universities, There's one novel that I've taught every year I've been a college professor. The book is titled We Were Here. The author's name is Matt de la Pena. This book concerns the experience of three kids who meet because they're all assigned to live in a group home. They're all caught up in the juvenile justice system so these three main characters have all done something wrong that's caused them to run afoul of the law and they're all now living in a group home instead of in straight up juvie so the main character's name is miguel there's a character named mong and there's a character named Rondell. Um so one kid is african-american one's asian and one is um, biracial with Mm -hmm. Mexican heritage. So these kids meet, they don't like each other. Um, they don't like where they are. They don't like who they are, but for a variety of reasons, they make a plan that they're going to run away from the group home. They're in California and they're going to journey down to Mexico with the hope of starting a new life. And on the way, you know, it's a journey story. Um, you know, you know, in the same way that the Odyssey by Homer is a journey story. Um, they're going to find out a lot of things about themselves and the world and how they're viewed by the world. They're going to find out a lot of things about each other. um, And they're going to reckon with their identities um, being labeled a group home kid and what that means for your sense of self and your, your fate in life. And once you have that label put on you, can you be anything more than a group home kid? Um, Meanwhile, the, the main character who's Miguel, oddly enough, before they leave the group home he steals a bunch of books from the group home library and they happen to be works of classic literature hmm. one of one of them is the color purple one of them is the catcher in the rye one of them is of mice and men and so this group home kid who could easily just be kind of put in a box as a stereotype he's reading these these classic works and he's he's thinking about the experience of the characters in these books, and he's connecting their experience to his own. So it's a novel that's written in vernacular. Um, There's a lot of slang. There's profanity in the book. Um, These are kids that are not uh, traditional heroes, but boy, are they heroic, dignified, complex, amazing human beings. And the fact that we get to hear their voices, their authentic voices, not a cleaned up standard English version of their voices. It's a way to get to know their humanity. So that's that's the book that always comes to mind first because it's one that touched me the first time I've read it and it continues to resonate with students every fall in my class.
0: Uh, I'm sold. I, I really appreciate the recommendation and I'm sure that those listening do as well. And I, I've never even heard that title, so I'll definitely have to check it out. Um, that's great. Should a teacher play matchmaker with books? Should it, Is it appropriate for a teacher to say... You know, you'll see yourself in this book, or should they just kind of put the books out there and let students find that out on, the, on their own?
2: I think both things should happen. So, my answer is yes, teachers absolutely should play matchmaker, and the teacher should be the one doing that because even though librarians are also exceptionally skilled matchmakers, teachers know readers. They're just able to know teen readers in a deeper way often than a librarian just because of um, more frequent contact not to say that a librarian can't develop a deep relationship with a teenager, but if you're an English teacher, you're seeing kids every day. And so you're getting to know those kids. And if you are also knowledgeable about the newest books that can speak to these kids, who better than to play the part of matchmaker than you. Um, But secondly, you can't know everything about every kid and you can't know what in a story is going to resonate with an individual kid. So I learned from another leading English educator. Her name is Donalyn Miller. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called The Book Whisperer. Um, Donalyn talks about putting stacks of books in front of kids or organizing books into bins where the science fiction books are in a bin and contemporary fiction is in a bin and romance is in a bin, but also just stacks because, um, if you put a stack in front of a, a student or a group of students, they themselves can have greater ownership and agency if they're able to sift through the stack and then make the decision. But there's still matchmaking work that's happened because somebody had to build that stack to begin with.
0: Jennifer Bueller, we appreciate your time. Um, if you uh, don't mind, do you, can you share maybe a way somebody can catch up with you? You seem pretty active on Twitter. Do you mind sharing your, your handle there?
2: yeah i'm more of a listener than a speaker on twitter yeah, you, you retweet a, a lot, lot. I see. yeah i retweet a lot i really enjoy and um, benefit from the community that i find on twitter so yeah my twitter handle is at prof bueller so it's professor p-r-o-f and then my last name bueller b is in boy u-e-h-l-e-r that's the best way to get in touch with me
0: well professor bueller are you ready for our pop quiz
2: I'll give it a shot. Yeah.
0: All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be?
2: I have to say English. It's a place where you can express yourself and you can find uh, inspiration in how other people express themselves. So, English.
0: What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching?
2: Um the way that school can provide a lens for reading the world. I think every discipline should be um, asking itself, how can the content that I'm teaching help kids understand the world about them more deeply?
0: What does every child deserve? Respect. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators?
2: Respect.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator?
2: Um, support and empathy. Uh, The work of educating kids is really hard and it's really complex. And I think most teachers are doing the best they can. They just don't always know what they don't know or they don't have time to fix the things that need to be fixed. So a little compassion goes a long way.
0: Which teacher changed your life?
2: A lot of teachers changed my life, um, but the one that comes to mind first was my sixth grade science teacher. His name was Bill Beezy. Um He uh, loved us as human beings and told us that he was um, putting aside the textbook and the work that we were going to do every day was going to be hands-on, and, um, and that was true. And, and he loved us as kids and um, made our learning. Fun and meaningful and challenging.
0: And last question, pen or pencil. Pen. All right, Jennifer Bueller, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this very important subject. Uh, again. Uh, again, the book is Teaching, Reading with YA Literature, Complex Texts, and Complex Lives. If anyone wants to check that out. and uh, you can also find uh, Professor Bueller on Twitter at Prof Bueller. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at or tweet us at dismiss.